Penny and Julie, thanks so much for coming on and having a chat. How's South Stuff been so far? When you get to hang out with your friend and do work, what could be better than that? That's yeah. awesome. It's a beautiful city mm. and the people are awesome. There's been so much hospitality. As I said, you know, I know it's summer here. It doesn't feel like summer, no. but it does feel like a San Francisco <laughs> summer, so I'm, I feel at home. <laughs> Had you been to Adelaide before? No, my first time. Nice. Yeah. Have you had a few days here? Or? Um, day and a half. Okay. Are you hanging around for the for the weekend, for the wine? Or? Unfortunately, Penny and I are going to Melbourne for a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> we just travel around Australia together. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> we that. come as a duo, we should. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a good gig. So... Be kindred and ta-da. That's exactly right. And you kind of work in similar spaces as well in regards to... No. I think we share a lot of similar passions. Okay. But we work in quite different spaces. I also think we share and learn from one another. Oh, huge. Yeah. Julie makes me look at the world through a different lens. It's really important to do that though, isn't it? And have have people that can force you to do that, I suppose, or give you you the, the glasses to actually see things through different eyes. Where's the fun in people who agree with you? Mm. I don't, for me, you know, yeah. it doesn't, I grow better when people challenge my thinking and help me wear a, you know, a different set of glasses. And I also think the thinking, the, the sharing and listening, you know, Penny, I'm going sideways. What do I, you know, great have to have a great pair of ears and to hold space for one another. We've been talking a lot today about in a, in a business setting or in a sort of a founder setting, but actually needing to have space where you can have conversa- real conversations with people and, and share, you know, more than just kind of the, the triviality. So actually, you know, we, we've talked before about, you know, emotion and, and people, especially in business, being afraid to sort of talk about, you know, the bad times or, you know, feeling like shit and the things aren't going that way. And I think often, you know, as a business owner, you, you do worry about talking about that stuff, but it's so important as, on a human level to do that. It's so interesting that you raise that because if I talk about what Jules and I have done recently together, so Jules recently hosted an event that I run um, at Mirudee, which is called Humanising the Future of Work. And what we do is we create the space for business leaders, heads of education and children between the ages of 15 and 17 to come together and have conversations around what it means to be human in the future. Yeah, cool. Because they Um, are the future. Because they are the future. Yeah, I sat in one of her sessions and I was so excited. I'm like, you need kids in here. It's the other point of view. Yeah. And the other thing that you spoke about is in terms of holding space. So there's a program that we run called the Fearless Masterclass and I run it with kids but also large corporations. And what we do is we create space for people to talk about what's really going on. Mm. And I can't tell you how desperate people are for that space. And equally, I can't tell you how happy I am to have created these programs, but equally how sad it makes me when I hear what people are carrying and showing up with every day that no one knows about. From suicides in families to breast cancer that no one in the office knows about, to wives with depression, you know, to a son who's had three of his mates suicide in the last 12 months. Like, every time we run this program, people will sit in front of 60 peers. And as soon as you create a safe space for fear to be shared, it's like people are just desperate to put it on the table. We did something similar also with our founders at Mira D, where we sat, stood around in a circle and the facilitator said, write one thing down that you are, that nobody knows about, that you're holding on to. And it was similar to everything to, I think I need to fire my co-founder. I'm severely depressed. I don't think I'm going to make payroll next week. Mm. And so they just wrote it down anonymously on a piece of paper, put it in the middle. And then we read them one by one. We didn't know who was who. 
But people were looking around and saying, I could have written seven of those things. And there was this aha moment of connection saying, oh my God, I'm not alone at this. And so we created a space with our founders that they could share that. And every Friday they, they, they can share it what they're going through and the sense of connection and not feeling so alone in it. That's really cathartic getting it out, right? Like I think that's a lot of baggage that people are sort of carrying around with them. I also want to say we also did the flip side, like things that are, are actually really yeah, going so. awesome. We had to balance that out. And so it was like you could share the wins and you could share the things that are just going sideways. Yeah. And it is, it's great space, isn't it? It is... It, well, I used to think, you know, my title is I call myself a happiness hacker. And when I first started running these programs with large groups and doing this stuff, within half an hour, people would start crying. Okay. Yeah, because we were holding space and creating space for people to share what's really going on. And I was like, oh my God, I'm shit at this. I'm not making people happy. I'm actually making them sad. <laughs> but what I realized was I wasn't making them sad. No. I was giving them the opportunity to turn up as who they really were and normalize what's going on in our society. And I, I find it fascinating that so much of us are so many of us are carrying the same things mm. but we're so afraid of the judgment of others or being perceived as weak yep. that and even with so much awareness around mental health and stuff now it is still a massive issue where people are wearing masks yeah i think you you hit the nail on the head by saying the judgment and owning their shit like that's where i feel safe i can call you and say hey penny things are going sideways i own it i've done this i also have you know that that voice that always that I feel is yelling at me, and I've actually named her Beatrice. Nice. <laughs> um, she's like my second friend. She's my, yeah, she, she's around. She's getting a lot of play. She's getting a lot of airtime. But maybe that'll quiet her down a little bit. And it's that judgment thing where um, not having that or lessening it makes things a little bit easier. But to your point about people crying, you crack things open. Yeah. You know, so it's amazing. I get to watch her after her events, how she's beaming and cracked open, and oh my God this is awesome and there's happiness happening and I can do this. I've been really surprised in my career with staff that, you know, you hear about something that's been happening in their life and it's got to a point where they've had to tell me for whatever reason, but it's been sort of months of this happening. And a couple of times it's happened where their performance has been going down and I've actually pulled them aside and been like, well, what's happening? And, you know, whatever it might be. And it's like, why didn't, why didn't you tell me? Like, why, did, why didn't you tell me earlier? Like, you know, and I, I think for whatever reason, I mean, we have a fairly open kind of... Uh, place to work where I would hope people would feel comfortable telling me but people do just hold things back and don't feel like the workplace is somewhere where you should you know express whatever that is one of the things that we do with my team meeting we do a one word check-in okay. so instead of everyone telling how their day is it's what's your one word how are you showing up right now and it can be everything from I'm excited I'm stressed I'm anxious I'm not feeling well I'm, I'm hungry I'm, and so after the meeting or during the meeting you know where things are coming from when they're sharing their update Sure. And how frustrated it is. And as, then as a teammate, you can go and say, hey, how can I help you be less overwhelmed? How can I, you know, make you more happy? Or that's so awesome that you're, you know, succeeding at all the things that you're your targets. We need more curious conversations. Yeah. We've, we've conditioned ourselves, especially as grown-ups, to not be curious anymore. And I, you know, challenge people now. What if we actually went into some conversations that were tense conversations? And rather than going to those conversations seeking to put... Our, in, our opinions and our views and our advice on the table, what if you just sought to understand the perspective of the other person? What if you just created space for them to share where they were at and what was really going on for them and how they were feeling about the tension between the two of you? Allow yourself to put yourself in their shoes. How often do we do that? Not very often. And most people go into conversations with, you know, with a point they want to get across or something. You know, and, and don't listen either. They just sit there and... Well, they're constantly thinking about the next thing they're going to say. So yeah. they're not even taking in what's being said. And then you wonder why we end up with frustration. We're probably missing about 80%. 
of the messages that are coming at us. And I know, um, I wasn't in your talk, but I know that you were talking about, you know, how technology is playing a part in, in I suppose, changing the way, we, you know, we think and we communicate and, and, and you know, we actually interact as humans. I had a chat with a, a, an older gentleman last night, but we were talking about, you know, in the, having grown up without these, and then, you know, now it's such a part of my life. I can feel my attention span has changed in the last 10 years. Like it, it, it physically has. And I was asking him, I think he was about 55, and he, he said the same thing. He said, you know, it's, it's dramatic actually how much he feels his attention span has changed. And, you know, the things that, you know, even just reading a book, I read a book now, and, you know, I find it very hard to lose myself in it because I'm thinking, oh, I need to check Instagram or I need to check my email or whatever it might be, actually switching off and just, you know, having a conversation. That's why I, I, I love this podcast because, you know, generally... I'm not looking at my phone. David doesn't let me look at my phone. Um, because, you know, you, you actually can just tune in and, and get out of the sort of constant updates and notifications that are constantly bubbling up. So I think... Sorry, Joe. I was just going to say, it's powerful in silence. Like listening to someone and not having to be on and have to say the next right brilliant thing. I totally agree with you, but what concerns me about what you just said, you're of a generation that's not probably dissimilar to mine. I'm 43. How old are you? 35. 35, Jules? I'm older than you. Okay. So that said, I've got an eight-year-old. Mm. And so think of a generation that doesn't have that point of comparison. I know. Right? So they've never had that opportunity to know what it's like to be in a different state of disruption. Yeah to live without that technology constantly disrupting yourself. And I think that's where my biggest concern comes in when I, when I observe him, when I observe his friends. Um, they have, without that point of comparison, yeah. how do you help them understand the benefits of actually disconnecting time, you know, creating disconnected time and sitting in the stillness and getting bored? You know, these kids feel every single space now. Mm. And not being bored and being in stillness from a mental health perspective, but equally from an opportunity perspective to innovate yeah. Yeah, and disrupt and do things differently and, and you know, challenge yourself, I think it's concerning. And, and what, what, how, do we, how do we deal with that? How, how, on a like parental level, so how, do you, how do you broach it? Because I've, I've got mates, with, I don't have kids, but you know, it's difficult to try and tell them that. Take the iPad away. Why are you taking the iPad away? So I am by no means professing to be the perfect parent. Sure. I'm just professing to be a parent who tries. Yeah. And so with the intent of trying, and um, there's a few things that I have done. So iPads are not a given in my house. I know too much about how they're designed for addiction and attention. Uh, so we only allow an hour a day on a weekend. He can't have it during the week. Now, and even taking that off him is a real problem because what you mm. find is that, again, designed for addiction, nothing that they play on an iPad or a device ends. So they never feel like they're finished, yeah. right? So it's no different from giving them crack, seriously, in terms of the behavioural response. Sure. So we can, we can find the time that he has it. Equally, um, I've had to actually text, I'm the pain in the ass parent that actually texted other parents and told them to not send their kids over with tech. Because we had kids turning up for play dates that would be on the doorstep with all their tech. Some kids would have three devices. Wow. And I just said, I'm sorry, like we've got devices and I've got no problem at the end of the day when they want to chill out and watch some YouTube if they've been active and outdoors all day. Yeah. But I'm not having kids come over here and sit next to my son and play on a device and call that, call that play, play or engagement. Yeah. So um, that's... A, and the other thing I've become really active in um, trying to pursue is I play soccer with my son every night after school. So how do we get outside and do things out in nature? Yeah. Uh, we, we started hiking. We started camping. And he loves it. But it's just being proactive yeah. in getting them to get outside and have the balance between the two. And I think that, I mean, just outside of the, the physical sitting there and looking at it, it's, 
you know, how are they going to, when he gets into high school, you know, actually interact at, you know, at school with their friends, you know, a lot of that is actually just happening on the device itself, you know, does it change in the way kids are, you know, making friends and making connections and, and actually, you know, I suppose changing the way they're growing up essentially, isn't it? Fundamentally. Yeah, yeah I, I worry about the, the bullying. The, sure. the digital I, bullying. Yeah. I luckily, you know, didn't have it going to school, and when I was teaching, they didn't have the devices either, so I didn't have to deal with it. I had to do, deal with real life, mm. real life bullying. But it's a way to be behind, be anonymous, and that whole the trolls, the bullying, um, and there's an opportunity there to teach kids more about stepping in and stepping up. You know, it's just as, as easy as it is to be a bully. Can we make it just as easy to to call out bullying, mm. as well as you know the critical thinking skills that we need. Uh, on what's everything that's out there, to knowing what's real, what's fake, what's you know, what, how we should be looking at at the, the the news that we're reading. What's you know, really being able to have critical thinking skills. You talked before about about listening and about you know the, these these bubbles that we're going to get caught in on whatever social media or, or what do they call the um, you know like the cocoon that uh, feedback loop. You're only hearing sort of you know your your the opinion and not actually echo chamber. Um, I, one of the things that um, I was taught. Growing up, was that you know you, you should be looking, you should you should be reading you know, different articles about things, and, and and actually critically thinking about whatever it is, the news, the world around you, and, and listen to different perspectives. And I think you know, things like travel, um, and travel is a big one for me. I think or actually going overseas and seeing you know different cultures, and you, you start thinking, okay, well, I'm, it's not just a bubble that I live in in Adelaide, but that's the be all and end all of the world, and you know we're all doing we're all doing the same th- kinds of things, but in different ways. And it's I think people are getting a bit lost in that in that echo chamber on the devices and, and can't really see past that. I mean obviously you can see some of the recent world events you know how that could be manipulated as well which is which is frightening if you're not surprising yourself on a regular basis then I would say you're not being curious enough and you're not stepping out of that bubble yeah you know, surprising yourself means constantly challenging your perspectives constantly asking yourself if I was wrong about this what sort of questions would I be asking myself Mm. I think so much of us believe that our experiences and the opinions that we hold are actually facts and, you know, the experience that we have in the world is so minuscule comparative to what the world is. Mm. So if we come from a foundation, a positive foundation of saying, you know, what if everything I know is actually wrong or I challenged everything that I know? Mm. And creating new synapses, so the biological changing, creating the neurons and the connections and the new synapses is is growth. And it's what you said before. It's staying curious. Like, and how do and how do we how do we teach? You know, especially young kids. I think because you know they obviously have curiosity sort of built in, right? That that's something. And they that, can teach us. Yeah. Oh, we yeah, get sure. older. We forget that whole growth mindset, and we get in this fixed mindset. That's why I was so excited to make sure Kenny Penny had kids at the next event because to the aha moments, which was fun. To, first of all, it was fun to watch the adults saying, "Oh my God, these kids are so smart." Mm. But the kids on the flip side were saying. They're actually listening to me, you know. So it's creating that sense of confidence, which was really exciting for me to see as well. Mm. Oh. But human connection is fundamentally lacking in the next generation. So they are unbelievably, um, I say, intelligent beyond mm. any generation that's gone before them. They've got more access to knowledge than they've ever had. Yep. But when you ask them where they get their knowledge from, yeah, from a curiosity perspective, yeah, where do you think most of them get their knowledge from? Google. Google. Yeah. Google. Okay. And so when you search Google, what comes to the top of the feed? ads yeah things that are paid for yeah. things that are new mm. or things that are clicked on the most sure. 
Is that necessarily what the truth is? Is no. that necessarily the facts? And this is what you're using to build your knowledge. Mm. And so I'm not saying don't use Google, but in terms of exploring curiosity and especially in the next generation, look at the diversity of the approach which, with which you explore curiosity, yeah? How much curiosity can be found in connecting with random strangers, people who think fundamentally different from you or challenge your thinking? Are there podcasts you can listen to? Are there books you can read? Can you attend industry events that are fundamentally different from anything you currently do that are unrelated and just see what happens? Yeah, so I think um, in terms of exploring curiosity, especially in the next generation, we need to shift our mindsets and diversify to really start to challenge some of the beliefs that we, we hold. Um, but human connection, as I said earlier, is also a huge opportunity. Young people are extremely, extremely smart, but unfortunately by the way they engage with technology and use it as sort of the go-to for everything, it's diminishing skills that are innately human. And because they're not humanly connecting as much as our generation did... It impacts their ability yeah, to build resilience, to problem solve, to have difficult conversations, yep. to feel connected. Yeah, The rate of loneliness in young people mm. is really high, but they're on their phones all the time. Connected. Well, we are wired for human connection, mm. but again, it's something that's been significantly diminished. I mean, it's kind of frightening looking forward to how that is going to play out because and you can see it, I think, with you know, talking to some of the younger generation because they... They do have all this. They have the power and knowledge, and they're so, especially in the fields we are, design, tech. They're so they're really skilled. Mm. Um, but then you put them in a meeting, or you put them in instead sort of something that's a bit outside of their comfort zone, and, and, and it's harder for them to function. I think. We did some research recently where um, I was very curious on how young people looked at the future. And so we went out to 80 kids between the ages of 14 and 17 in Melbourne and Sydney and we asked them to complete the statement in the future. Okay. Yeah, And it was fascinating what they came back with. Mm. There was no conditions other than complete the statement. And so the themes that came out of that that absolutely blew me away, first of all, they were extremely concerned about the damage we were doing to the environment yep. and they fundamentally believed that we would destroy the earth. That was disturbing. Yep. They're extremely concerned about a lack of opportunity in a world where automation takes over yep. and does the bulk of the work. And to be quite honest, that's not unfounded. We know at the moment that 50% of kids under the age of 25 can't get full-time work. Mm. Perhaps the most disturbing theme that came out of the whole thing that I had never seen before and was blown away by was they were very concerned about finding love in a world where it was all done online and everyone was replaceable. Mm. These were kids thinking about finding meaningful relationships. What age bracket were they? They were 14 to 17. Wow. And I just, like, that broke my heart. Yeah. You know, it's like, what if... Yes, there's a real convenience with online dating and I can see there's benefits of it, but equally, what has it done to the replaceability of people? Yeah. And also, what's it done to people's confidence? Like you say, like, what amount of bullying goes on in that space? I, I couldn't imagine. I mean, and it, you're right, it's so easy to hide behind, you know, a, a handle or whatever it and is. find something next. Like, so, like, for online dating, oh, you're not meeting all of my ten requirements. Yeah. Next. Swipe. Swipe. Next. And we don't give people, I think also the thing that happens with that as well, we don't give people a chance anymore. Mm. Yeah, I think we were a lot more tolerant of people and giving them a chance in the days when they weren't as replaceable. Whereas now it's like, I've got friends, you know, they go on a date with someone, they go, oh, he had this annoying habit. And it's like, well, when you used to meet someone in a bar, it was a lot harder work, yeah? yeah. <laughs> so it's like, damn, if I've got to find someone else, 
I'm going to invest a little bit to see where this might go. Whereas now people aren't as willing to invest in one another as they used to be because it can just find someone else. If you talk to anybody that's been married for 40, 50, 60 years, one of the first things they always say is, you know, it's, it hasn't been an easy road. We've had to, we've had to no. work on this. And you have to work on human relationships, right? It's not, it, it, it takes two to tango and you actually have to, you know, give and take and, and work through those bumps. It's not just, yeah, replaceable onto the next. No. Or yeah. Photoshop it or take <laughs> the perfect selfie and add the filters. And, and, and that stuff's, I think, frightening too. And how... I, I couldn't imagine, I think especially being, being a girl, but boys too, in high school, you know, that, you know, the pecking order that you had at high school without these things, but then you've also got this digital world that they live in, you know, in parallel to, to high school where, you know, how many likes do I have? Who, who's, who's like this? Oh, this photo didn't, you know, and it's a real, I don't know, it, it, would, it would consume you, I think. Well, what it's done is it's basically meant that everyone now needs to have a personal brand. Yeah. So these young kids now, basically with their Instagram profiles, without even realising it, they're branding themselves. And they're very good at it too. Yeah. It's a, yeah. a, a, an interesting thing, because we do, we do marketing as well, I've, I've noticed that some marketers, they, they've got such great personal brands, young people, but then they don't actually think about it. They don't, they don't go, well, I could transfer these skills that I've been using for my personal stuff across to you know, marketing company, for somebody else. Business. Because they don't actually really see it as, oh, I'm working on my personal brand, even though you know, no. they really are. But how real is the personal brand? No, I mean, it's not that real at all. It's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's kind of a... Marketing. Yeah, basically. But it's a, you know, it's a projection, right? This is sort of how I want my life to be seen. How does it make... But if we're all trying to be perfect and we're trying to portray this perfect image and the reality is this hu being human is all about imperfection, mm. what does it do? What does it do up here? You know, like, what does it do to our minds? Well, it's the definition of perfection. You know, it's the social online media is, is making this perfect perfect. Wait until the bifurcation of humanity comes in. Are you yeah. familiar with that? No. Well, so with genetic modification now that... Oh, sure. They're basically saying, you know, people with money in the future will be able to not only eyes. choose blue eyes, yeah. but level of intelligence, yeah, um, remove physical disabilities or, you know, anything like that. Beatrice, remove Beatrice. So Just what they're saying is that, you know, basically we will have um, multiple factions of humanity yeah. where it will be like having, you know, humans that are Great Danes versus Poodles and, and the level of attraction between that um, the d diversification of humanity will actually, like, we won't want to engage with one another because we will be so different. It will be the perfect race and then there'll be us who are the naturals. It essentially creates a, a subspecies. And the tech is already there. Yeah, and it's the same with sort of, uh, you know, AI or, you know, if we can start integrating computers into it. So you can have sort of a, you know, a cast of humans that are kind of semi, you know, sci-fi stuff, but it's actually not that far off being reality. Well, we already have cyborgs. So yeah. in America, there's the cyborg games. And at the moment, we are currently using robotics and artificial intelligence to, to do amazing things yeah. with people who have severe disabilities. Sure. Um, and, and I, like that's what I say, I think, you know, there's unbelievable things we can do with technology that we should not stop because they give people opportunities and, and help people with disabilities to do things they've never been able to do. But where does, where does the ethical piece come in? Yeah. yeah. And who decides what's right and wrong and where this will be taken? And I... I don't think as a society we are anywhere near where we need to be to be able to navigate that at the moment. No, and, and similar conversation around, around um, you know, this tech world we live in. We haven't been in it long enough to be able how, how do we regulate it, who regulates it, you know, is it, a, is it, is it on us to do that or...? So what do we have to do, wait until it all fucks up before... I don't know, yeah. 
what do you think? Well, Jill? I mean, also thinking the kids that are born that have that were born when was the iPhone came out in two thousand and seven. Seven, yeah. So they've been born with it, yeah, and they don't know any difference. Mm. And you know, kids that are going up to TVs and touching them and getting things to move. How about the di- the rotary phone? You know, these kind of things where we grew up. It's it's a very different world. Well, also fine motor skills. Yeah. Yeah. So how does the fact that everything's kind of you know touch touch screen I, I've got so many examples of friends that have said to me I've got a two or three year old and they've been given a book for the first time and they start trying to expand the book on the front cover because they don't know how to turn the pages yeah. <laughs> like you laugh but that is the reality because they're so mm. used to using a device rather than things that actually require them you know to use their fingers in a way that's different on a flip side because obviously you know times change right and, and, and over you know, and humans humans evolve too is, is this the path that we, you know, are destined to take? Is this, is this what's going to happen? Like, does the, the childhood that we have become a thing of, the thing of, you know, just memory? Technology is a mirror of humanity. And technology will only ever do what we want it to do. Yep. I don't have a problem with evolution. I think that we can't stop technology because it's going to solve so many world problems that if we can solve them, we have to solve them. We should solve them. My problem is that we bring consciousness and intention into that process, and at the moment, I don't think there's anywhere near enough of it. I I, I keep going to the problem-solving critical thinking. So when I was in first grade, I was taught to use an abacus. Yep. Okay, and then we were able to use calculators, but understanding how the math works. So understanding how the computer works, understanding how you know the websites are getting made, the technology is made, is that is those critical thinking skills rather than just you know getting your hands on the technology and assuming it works. So there are these if it breaks, you know how to fix it, you know how to hack it. What happens if you don't have it? What happens if the Wi Fi goes down? Yeah. Life can go on. Which I think is even more important, especially in the context of something like machine learning. Mm. So with machine learning, you've got two options in the way that you develop it, from my understanding. Yeah? You can either develop it so that you always understand the algorithms and you always know how it arrived at the decision. Yep. But there are many people in terms of the, the machine learning that they're creating where the machine continues to teach itself and it gets to a point where no one actually knows how it's arrived at the decision because it's kept self-learning. Building its own algorithms, yeah. yeah. And then if you're using that for things like um, sentencing of criminals or how to give patients treatment in a hospital and you're on the receiving end of, hey, this is the treatment you're going to get, and you sit there go, I actually don't want that for my family member. No. And the person telling you this says, well... You know, we that's what it is, that's what the computer says. And you say, well, help me understand that. How did the computer arrive at that decision? We don't know. We don't know. Yeah, <laughs> so I don't know. Is that a level of control that you want to give over to artificial intelligence? Yeah. That's, it, it scares it's, me. It is scary. But then overlay with that, right, the fact that we know, for example, AI can make decisions with machine learning, for example, in patient treatment, mm-hmm. at a 95% accuracy. Yeah. And humans can do it, say, at 60%. And yet we would rather take the inaccuracy of a human at 60% than put the trust and control in AI at 95% accuracy. Mm. So well, let, me, let me go back to the accountability piece then. You know, making, allowing computers to make the decisions for us, the accountability is then put on somewhere else. Mm, is that a good, good thing or a bad thing? Like it's, there's a lot of times sometimes I don't want to make the decisions and I'd love someone else to make it. And then I can blame someone else that fucks up. Yep. But I actually also, I have been an age and a stage and experience that I know when to own my shit. That's, that's empowering. Yeah. And it's understanding what level of control do we want AI to have. Yeah. And, and, you know, if we're comfortable with And we with do it. control that. So. So, and that's what I say. It's just consciousness and intention. It's yeah. thinking through these challenges and saying, well, what are the implications of that happening? And 
what decisions are we going to make? It's, it's exciting. I mean, it's, it's scary and there's, and there's a lot of scary stuff out there, but it's also exciting. I think, I think um, it's, it's going to be it's going to be an interesting future. I'm, I'm looking forward to it, but I think, yeah, um, I think we definitely have to make some conscious decisions about how we do interact with technology and, and follow through on it too. I think it's yeah. got some of those things that people, we start having these conversations and you go back to <laughs> the, the feed. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Turn it off. Yeah. Create space in your day to turn off. Awesome. Thanks so much for the chat. Thank you.